Hello and welcome to Paleo Cinema Podcast 172. My name is Terry Frost and I apologise that I'm a week late with this podcast. But anyway, the movie I'm going to talk about this time is an interesting film from 1942 starring Spencer Tracy and Catherine Hepburn. It's called Keeper of the Flame and has some interesting stuff to say about wartime politics in the US and it's a kind of rare film for a studio at the time it was MGM who did it in that it talks about politics so um, I'm also going to um, play a bit of audio that I've got left over from one of the radio things I did with Liz Travaskas where we're going to talk about the Jimmy Cliff movie The Harder They Come and I'm going to update you on what I've been watching so uh, sit back relax I'll get the contact details out of the way and the show will start Paleo Cinema Podcast is a fortnightly podcast of classic movie appreciation. The rules are pretty simple. The movie has to be at least 20 years old, and I have to like it. Now, you can leave feedback via MP3 or email to cultguru at gmail.com. That's K-U-L-T-G-U-R-U, which would be appreciated. You can also leave a review on iTunes, but please send me an email when you do so I can check it out. You can also go to the Paleo Cinema Cafe on Facebook and like that page if you want updates. This podcast may contain naughty words and adult concepts, so if you don't want to do a lot of explaining to small children, listen to it with your headphones on. Okay, so how has everybody been? As I said, I was very sick last weekend. I had either food poisoning or gastroenteritis, but whatever it was, it meant that I had noxious fluids exploding out of both ends, and I really wasn't going to put a microphone anywhere near my mouth because I didn't want to have to buy a new microphone. So, um, yeah, last weekend was a total write-off. I had the outlaws visiting for my mother-in-law's birthday, and I really just said to them, sorry, I've got to go to bed. And um, Sal was left to entertain her parents by herself. It really wasn't the best of times. I know I had a few days off work after that as well because of it. But with characteristic resilience, I have bounced back now. And I'm ready to catch up on podcasts. So I'm doing Paleo Cinema and Martian Drive-In podcast this weekend just to get back on track. So as usual at the start of the podcast, it is time for... And yes, I have been playing with the reverb, so it is time for... What have I been watching? And because of the break, uh, I've been watching a few things. In fact, I'll get the letter boxed up. Uh, I did see a Jennifer Aniston film, which uh, Liz Travaskas decided we were going to do for the ABC local radio Northern Territory gig, and it's Cake. It's about a woman with chronic pain who... um, is in a group, uh, a therapy group for people with chronic pain, and one of the people in that group commits suicide. So she goes on a quest to find out why this woman committed suicide, and there's a kind of redemptive arc. Um, Aniston's character is an alcoholic and is self-medicating with all sorts of pain meds and has a really nice little um, monologue at the start. But, yeah, it's not a bad film. Uh, Jennifer Aniston, I think, is because of the Friends thing and because her personal life is what she's more known for than her acting, is a better actor than she's been given credit for, and she's pretty good in this one. The script and some of the other actors in the film let her down somewhat. Uh, in particular, I'm talking about you, Sam Worthington. 
but uh, it wasn't a bad film and it took me out of my comfort zone and we were doing something a little bit different which is kind of cool and so um, yeah I, I kind of enjoyed it but I could see how it was a flawed film even though the acting of her and Felicity Huffman who's also in it and a small role a one scene role by William H. Macy. They're all good in it. Everybody else is shit. So if you want to see cake, see cake, but just be aware of those kind of uh, conditions on it. Then I saw something which is kind of an old favourite from the 1960s. The first of the Frankie Avalon and Annette Funicello movies from 1963, directed by Elizabeth Montgomery's husband, William Asher, and it is... Vacation is here, beach party tonight. Yep, Beach Party, uh, which also had Robert Cummins in it, uh, Dorothy Malone. Uh, Jody McRae, the son of Joel McRae, is in it. John Asher and all those other people who are in the Beach Party movies. And the Beach Party movies are innocent fun. There's nothing special. And Maury Amsterdam's in it as well, which is kind of cool. And there's even a cameo from Vincent Price, which was really groovy. I watched it with Sally, and Sally didn't know that Big Daddy was going to be played by Vincent Price. Spoiler. And so when he popped up, she was thoroughly delighted. So, um, yeah, Beach Party, it does leave a bad taste in your mouth. It's a little bit of fun. I may have to have to watch the other six Beach Party movies at some stage just to kind of go through the arc. But um, there's a lot on the list to watch, and I haven't got around to much of it yet. Then I watched, uh, let me see, I did a movie called Who, starring Ella Gould and Trevor Howard. It's a kind of Cold War, slightly science-fictional spy thriller about a man played by an actor called Joseph Bova who is captured by the Russians, but he's severely burnt and damaged. And so he is partly robotic when he comes back to the um, Allied side of things. And they've got to try to find out whether he's actually who he says he is and whether he has the secrets they need for because he's a scientist and all that kind of shit. It's actually not too bad. It's a bit of a talky piece. It's based on a novel by a fairly well-known science fiction writer, Aldous Budras. And, um, yeah, it's kind of a, an odd little Cold War spy thing. Not quite science fiction, not quite a Cold War spy thing, but nonetheless, um, yeah, not too in- uninteresting. Now, the other thing I did, which is um, kind of fun, I got a five-box set of William Castle movies from the late 1950s, early 1960s. And I've slowly been going through that. First one we watched was 13 Ghosts, which was kind of cool, because 13 Ghosts has got that ghost-o-vision thing, where if you watch it with a red filter over your eyes, you can see the ghosts. But if you watch it with the blue filter over your eye, you don't see the ghosts. So we decided to watch it with our red-blue 3D glasses on. And you just close whichever eye is relevant when the ghosts come up. And it was kind of cool doing that. Um, 13 Ghosts was doesn't have anybody famous in it, but it's got that little kind of William Castle gimmick about it. And it was really fun revisiting it, wearing the glasses. So we got the full ghost effects, which were kind of you know, fun in a hokey kind of way so we watched that um we started watching 13 frightened girls which is a william castle one which is kind of a cold war spy thriller which is odd very odd didn't continue with it didn't watch it all the way through so we went on to something that i knew sal would like because she hadn't seen it before and it was Castle's Homicidal from the early 1960s which has Glenn Corbett and uh, Gene Arliss in it 
And there's that twist in Homicidal. If you've seen Homicidal, you know what I mean. There's that character twist in it. It's a little bit like Psycho, but it's got some cool things in it. And Sal didn't pick who Warren was in the movie, the character of Warren. And so when the reveal came, she was blown away by it. She really didn't pick up the actor involved. And that was kind of fun, introducing her to that and her not noticing the... um, elephant in the room in a sense so we, we had a little bit of fun with that then we watched a third um kind of a third, three and a half william castle film which was the old dark house uh starring tom poston and uh, a bunch of english character actors and that was just plain silly so we kind of enjoyed that but it wasn't fantastically good then we went on to a kind of 80s retro film made very recently in Canada. It's a Canadian-New Zealand co-production, Turbo Kid, which has Michael Ironside in it. Um, and it's like a post-apocalyptic wasteland where the people ride BMX bikes because there's no petrol. And there's a kid that lives in a, um, a bomb shelter underground who meets up with the villain played by Michael Ironside and finds a cute girl who's not quite what she seems to be. And yeah, it's it's very kind of knowingly 1980s in style. Great big gore effects in this manner of very early Peter Jackson films with you know, lots of blood and guts everywhere and decapitations and dismemberments, but they're all done in such a way that it's quite amusing rather than gory and nasty. And yeah, that was, that was a bit of fun. Um, about on level with watching one of those 1980s films, in fact. Uh, then we saw the recent reiteration of the old Chevy Chase um, vacation films. This one starring Ed Helms and Christina Applegate, amongst other people. And, yeah, it wasn't too bad. They had some nice little chops in it. Chris Hemsworth does a really nice piece of comedy in this one, which um, plays on Chris Hemsworth's godlike stature. And, uh, yeah, Hemsworth really kind of makes it work. He does have a light touch with comedy. And I think I've had this argument with a couple of people online. I think Hemsworth is a much better actor than he's given credit for and that he will show that in time to come once he gets past the Thor thing. And and there is that great and growing possibility that it will typecast him. I think he does have good chops as a character actor. And uh, he's one of those actors who wants to learn his craft better, which is always a great thing to see. You, you see too many actors, and we all know this, you see people who rest on their laurels. Once they get fame at the front end of their career, they really never move past that. But I think Hemsworth's going to, to prove to be the contrary. And I think that he does have good chops as an actor. Whether Hollywood allows him to break out of that mould, of course, that's another matter. But uh, in this one, he was fun. Uh, movie's kind of you know, goofy and silly, as indeed were the original vacation films. So if you want to check it out, check it out. Uh, I did see a few other films too, so I'm just going to go through them slightly quickly. I did see the recent horror film, It Follows, which is about that kind of venereally transmitted horror, which I won't do too many spoilers on, except to say that it's low budget and is very interesting. I don't think it's as good as some of the hype has led us to believe, but I think it is good. And it's got a slightly different twist on horror. It's um, got some genuinely freaky and and fucked up moments in it. And uh, it was on Netflix, so I, I did catch it on Netflix. And I think it's really worth checking out. If it's on your Netflix queue, 
definitely check out if it follows if you haven't. And I'm just moving something around here in the man cave, so please ignore the noise in the background. Um, from there, I went on to a Swedish film set in France, in the mountains of France, called Force Majeure, which is kind of a domestic drama in a sense. It's the story of a man, his wife, and their two children there on a ski holiday in um, the French Alps. And they almost get wiped out by an avalanche. And when the avalanche comes down, the husband has a moment of cowardice and runs away from his family. He picks up his gloves, picks up his mobile phone and runs instinctively, leaving his wife and children behind. Fortunately, there's not a disaster that happens at that point. But the the actions he takes in, you know, kind of out of fear, put a fracture in the family relationship. And the movie takes place over the five days or so that they're on the mountain. And it goes through the repercussions of that. And the flaws in the way he perceives himself and the way his wife perceives him. And the way masculinity is perceived. Uh, really interesting film. It's worth checking out, Force Majeure. Uh, a good film and very different from a lot of the things I've been watching lately, which is... Always nice and refreshing. Uh, then Paul Serratore took over the ABC local radio Darwin gig. And I decided I was going to introduce him to a comedy he hadn't seen. Because we hadn't done comedy before. We'd done a lot of action films. But we hadn't done a comedy. So we decided to go back to the classics. And did Blazing Saddles. We talked about fart jokes a fair bit. We talked about the Marlena Dietrich pastiche that Madeleine Kahn does as Lily von Stupp. We talked about what Stupp meant. We um, talked about Hedley Lamar. We talked about Lepetamine. And just basically had a great time deconstructing Blazing Saddles. And kind of hipping people to the references in it. So that was a lot of fun too. And the only other thing I want to talk about is a nice little British film from about 1942. It takes place during the war. And not by a large studio, but by a small studio. And um, it was pretty much for domestic production only. It's about two middle-aged ladies and an adventure they get on on a weekend. And it's called Gert and Daisy's Weekend, starring Elsie and Doris Waters, who were a vaudeville pair of sisters. Now, the lovely thing about Gert and Daisy's Weekend is the characters of Gert and Daisy, who are indomitable. Um, Gert is married. Daisy always has a fiancé who's off the scene and we never see. And they've got this great style of patter and repartee between each other. And the other thing that they've got is this infectious optimism. Now, this is when London was being bombed, and part of the arc of the story is the fact that Gert and Daisy get roped into taking children to the countryside because of that evacuation of children in London at the time. And uh, there's, a, there's a scene where they do a little bit of a song and dance number in the, um, in the tube train stations during the Blitz. And Gert and Daisy are wonderful characters. They're optimistic, they're forthright, they don't take shit from anyone. They're very feminist in a lot of ways, which surprised me a little bit. I'd heard a little bit about Gert and Daisy and how charming and fun they were. And they um, they get involved with jewel thieves and all sorts of other things when they get out into the countryside. But for the most part, they're two wonderful characters, and it was really cool seeing them in a, a film. Low budget um, by a very small English studio, but there's something about Gert and Daisy that kind of 
makes you optimistic for the human race almost. And it's a weird thing. You've got to see this to really understand that. But it is a, a lovely little charming film and um, a little bit of fun. No stars in it, but um, Elsie and Doris Waters are fantastic as Gert and Daisy. They did three films. They were given an OBE at the end of the war for the work they did for the war effort. And they were awarded the OBE in the presence of Winston Churchill. When the troops were in Burma and they sent out entertainers to entertain the troops in Burma during World War II, the first people to land and entertain the troops in Burma were Gert and Daisy, were Elsie and Doris Waters. And the other thing I found out, which is kind of interesting, I probably should do Gert and Daisy's weekend for the podcast at some stage. Let me know if you want me to. Um, the other cool thing is that Gert and Daisy were also the nickname that the Cray brothers had amongst other criminals during 1960s. Um, rather than calling them the Cray brothers, the other hard crims called them Gert and Daisy. So um, that's pretty much what I've been watching. And uh, it, but I really did like Gert and Daisy's weekend. I think that's my find of the week in a lot of ways. And... It shows that it doesn't matter how much you think you know about films, there are always going to be these little bits and pieces that pop up that are just charming and delightful and worth watching. So I'm going to take a break now. When I get back, we're going to talk about Keeper of the Flame, the Tracy and Hepburn film, very atypical for Tracy Hepburn films, from 1943. Before I do that, uh, one of my favourite jazz singers died this week. Mark Murphy, a uh, really fine jazz singer, very great stylist. Uh, I saw him live in 1998 at a jazz club in Seattle. And I was very disappointed in seeing him live because he was drunk, he wasn't in his best voice. But I'm glad I did it now, now that he's kind of stepped on the rainbow. I'm glad I, I did go to the jazz club and saw him. And even though I was disappointed, seeing one of the great 20th century jazz stylist live was something worth doing so I'm going to play a track by Mark Murphy before I do the movie this time from his 1957 album this could be the start of something and it is the Steve Allen written song this could be the start of something big You're walking along the street You're at a party Or else you're alone And then you suddenly dig You're looking in someone's eyes You suddenly realize That this could be the start of something big You're lunching at 21 And watching your diet Declining that rich French food Accepting a fig When out of a clear blue sky It's suddenly gal and guy And this could be the start of something big There's no controlling the unrolling of your fate, my friend Who knows what's written in the magic book But when a lover... You discover at the gate, my friend Invite her in without a second look You're up in an aeroplane Or dining at Sardi's Or lying at Malibu Alone on the sand You suddenly hear a bell And right away you can tell 
Bye, this could be the start of something grand You're doing your income tax or you're buying to brush Hurrying home because the hour is late Then suddenly there you go The very next thing you know is this could be the start of something great You're having a snowball fight Or picking up daisies Singing a happy tune Or knocking on wood When all of a sudden you look up and there's someone new Oh, this could be the start of something good You're a destined lover, you'll discover In a frightening flash So keep your heart awake both night and day Because the meeting may be fleeting Has a lightning flash And let's face it You don't want to let her slip away You're watching the sun come up Or counting your money Or else in a dim cafe You're ordering wine And suddenly there she is You want to be where she is And this must be the start of something This must be the start of something This must be the start of something So Vale Mark Murphy. But let's get on with Keeper of the Flame, the nineteen forty three drama starring Spencer Tracy, Catherine Hepburn, Richard Wolfe, Margaret Witcherly and Daryl Hickman. Uh it was directed by George Kukor, uh he of many, many movie fame. It was an MGM drama made just as America kind of realised that there was a World War Two. Now, this is, I think, the second Spencer Tracy, Catherine Hepburn film, and it's the only one of the films they did together where one of them doesn't live to the end of the film. Um, Now, this one is quite unusual for an MGM movie in that it does have a very strong political content, and Louis B. Mayer was very much against politics in movies. His idea was keep people laughing, keep them entertained, Don't make them think too much. Don't make it too complicated for them. And whatever you do, avoid controversy because that may affect the marketability of a product in various places. Don't make it too um, racially sensitive because the South won't like it. Don't make it... Basically, he was um, a middle-of-the-road kind of guy and uh, a pain in the ass for that. And that's one of the reasons why MGM had so much trouble in the 1960s when times changed and tastes changed they had a corporate culture which was very much contrary to the zeitgeist and even at the time of this film it was very much contrary to the zeitgeist to a certain extent and Mayer was very very worried and very concerned and wanted to tone down the innate political content of this film and the thing is that the whole story of the film is deeply and profoundly and importantly 
political. The story itself is pretty simple. Uh, Hepburn plays the widow of a famous civic leader who has suddenly died in a car accident. His car in a storm went off a bridge that had collapsed. Uh, where Spencer Tracy um, plays Steve O'Malley, a former war correspondent who intends to write a flattering biography of the dead man, only to find that his death is shrouded in some mystery. Now, this movie looks a lot like a Warner Brothers film rather than an MGM movie. It's in black and white. It's got um, a strong emphasis on character actors in it. Man, it really, I mean, when I first saw it, and I hadn't looked through the ancillary material. I did think it was a Warner Brothers film. It's got because it is political. Warner Brothers was a studio that was a bit more working class than MGM, and it was a little more willing to look at political subjects. I mean, things like Humphrey Bogart's movie, The Black Legion, and things like that were very political films in the late 1930s, and Warner Brothers was all over those. But MGM with that entertainment emphasis and wanting to be the best studio in the world and all the stars are in the galaxy or in MGM and all that kind of hype that was going on at the time. They really um, tended not to go with this kind of material. The movie was based on a then-unpublished novel called Keeper of the Flame, of course, by I.A.R. Wiley. Now, I did a little bit of research into I.A.R. Wiley and found out that she was actually an Australian lesbian. Not too many of those in Hollywood at the time. But uh, she, her book is somewhat different in structure than the movie. And there's a de-emphasis on the Steve O'Malley character. Whereas in the film as it played out, O'Malley is front and centre and Catherine Hepburn's character, Christine Forrest, comes in slightly later. Now, the movie's got a lot of energy at the start of it. For a film that was filmed all on a soundstage, and, and even though it's got scenes that should have been outdoors, it's all filmed on a soundstage, and it suffers a little bit for that. It really is uh, in, an interesting piece. O'Malley uh, enters town just after the death of the great man, Robert Forrest, and he's met there by one of the kind of unsung cool female roles that I've seen in a 1940s film. And that's a, there's a female reporter called Jane Harding, played by a Broadway actor called Audrey Christie, who didn't do a lot of work in film, but who plays the kind of wise-cracking female reporter really well in there. She's given some snappy dialogue. She's got a bit of an attitude. She's got slight vulnerability as well. But the weird thing about this film, from that point of view, is that her character is much more vivid and interesting than the character played by Catherine Hepburn, the Christine Forrest, the widow character. And I found that really um, weird, and it, it kind of left the movie feeling a little bit unbalanced for me, because I wanted to see more of Audrey Christie in the film. She really is a, a lot of fun. Uh, she, her character is something that a modern audience responds well because it, it seems to be the most feminist character and the most, for that reason, accessible character in the film in a lot of ways. Even though Tracy, as Steve O'Malley, has that great gravitas and that kind of charm and charisma and approachability that Tracy brought to pretty much all the roles he did, the camera loved the man and he knew how to use it extremely well. In spite of that, I really missed... Um, Audrey Christie's character when she wasn't on the screen which is a little bit odd to have 
in a film of this type, particularly when you have two iconic stars like Spencer Tracy and Catherine Hepburn up front and centre in the film. Now, at this stage, I'm going to pause and tell you I'm going to do spoilers about the upshot of this film while I'm talking about it. Nonetheless, please see it. It's uh, it's a kind of forgotten Spencer Tracy Catherine Hepburn film, possibly because of the weakness, structural weaknesses in the movie. But I think it really is an interesting one. It turns up on TCM here in Australia a fair bit. So you can definitely find it. It has been released on DVD as well. But um, anyway, to get back into the plot, there are a few different characters that uh, Mally meets in the town as the funeral of Robert Forrest ends and life kind of subsides to normal. The funeral was bigger than Ben-Hur. And one of the people that uh, Steve O'Malley meets is a young boy played by Daryl Hickman, who is Dwayne Hickman's brother. No big deal is Dwayne Hickman. Who plays Jeb Rickards, who um, believes that he was responsible for Robert Forrest's death because he didn't warn him that the bridge was out. He wasn't to know that Forrest was going to drive there, but he's got that kind of guilt, and and it's the first time the kid um, has seen death in a way, and it has a profound emotional effect on him and gives the kid pretty much a nervous breakdown. The fact that Robert Forrest, whom he admired like almost like a god, had died, and that he had information that might have saved his life, but he wasn't able to give it to him. And the poor kid um, is profoundly fucked up by that. His father is a kind of groundskeeper and um, major domo for the Forrest family, and he's played in a smaller role, but interestingly with with the same skill that we've seen this guy do in a lot of other roles by Howard De Silva with that great Howard De Silva voice um, younger than we see him in a lot of the roles that I've seen him in since then but you've got Howard De Silva and you've got Daryl Hickman then you've got Percy Kilbride playing Orion Peabody the taxi driver who um, squires Steve O'Malley around the place while he's getting the research done for this book that he's going to write about the great man. Percy Kilbride we know from playing Pa Kettle in the Mar and Pa Kettle movies. Stage actor most of his life, did a few films before this one, but for the most part, with the exception of some time he spent in the service in World War One, he was very much a stage actor. He'd done all sorts of things. He played French revolutionaries. But then he got into this rut of playing yokels. Um, his Peabody in this is a kind of really interesting, laid-back, laconic, slow-talking character. He's comic relief almost in a movie that would have been a lot more stiff and turgid without him in there. Um, Percy Kilbride then went on to play Mar and Parkettle in The Egg and I with Fred McMurray and Marjorie Maine, and then in all the Mar and Parkettle movies until the 1950s when he became ill. He was he died in a, uh, he was hit by a car in 1964 and died of his injuries then. But uh, Percy Gilbride, unfortunately, the Park Kettle thing really did stereotype him, and he spent years, spent the last active decade of his career playing the one role, and he hated that because he was the stage actor. He wanted to do versatile roles. He could play character parts of various kinds. And Peabody, the taxi driver, shows that, even though he does have that kind of drawl that he uses in the Mar and Park Kettle movies. Peabody's a great creation, and it does show the chops you can get from a character actor. Uh, so he's in there, and it's really interesting. But, of course, the the big dynamic, of course, is between Spencer Tracy and Catherine Hepburn. Um, now, to get into the, their personal life at the time, they're a fair had already started at this stage. 
And this was the first movie in which Catherine Hepburn was also kind of the carer for Spencer Tracy. Tracy had a lot of problems. Uh, even though he often played strong characters, he wasn't particularly robust himself. Uh, he had a problem with alcohol, which came from a lot of Catholic guilt. He was having an affair and, and pretty much living with Catherine Hepburn at the time, and his wife wouldn't divorce him. So he had a lot of that imposed guilt from that stupid organisation and institution, the Catholic Church, which fucked him up pretty badly. Um, and then, of course, alcohol, well, you're self-medicating with that to try to deal with that. And he also had an enormous amount of insomnia. He was running on two hours sleep a night, and as somebody who was uh, only recently got a CPAP and has fixed my own sleep problems, I've got a lot of sympathy for him. Uh, the fact that Spencer Tracy shows as such a vital character in his film is a great credit to both himself and to Catherine Hepburn. Watching the film, you don't know it. You can't see any of this personal stuff that he's going through. It really is a, a fine piece of acting by him. And his O'Malley is an empathic and intelligent character. At first, he, he wants to write a book which tells us the story of the great civic leader who um, was just about to make the leap into politics and, and to run for president. And as the story arc continues... He starts to see the cracks in the armour and starts to see that things are, perhaps aren't what they were. One of the things that tips into this is the character played by an actor called Richard Wolf. Uh, his character is called Clive Kerndon, who is the um, social secretary for the late Robert Forrest. And he is a villainous fuck. Just one look at him, you know that there's something not right about him. Um, he does promise to um, give... O'Malley access to some materials that will help and access to the widow so he can talk to her about her husband and about how she perceived him and how she wants his legacy to be but at one stage uh, at night time O'Malley goes to the forest house and for some reason they um, the door people at the door miss him and he walks into the house and meets Christine Forrest um, in her husband's study and they they have a little bit of a talk. She throws him out pretty much and then goes and talks to him later on at his hotel. And the they start to have a rapport. They start to talk a little bit. But, of course, she's a recently widowed person and also has some reluctance to speak about her husband in any way, which kind of sets O'Malley off a little bit. What's she hiding? What's happening here? And as the movie progresses, we learn more and more about her and through her more and more about the great man, Stephen O'Malley. Now, I'll play a little bit of the trailer for the film now and then talk a little bit more about it and go to the crux of the matter and why I find this film such an interesting political piece from the 1940s. I said to myself quite calmly, he'll come this way and be killed unless you hurry and warn him. And I didn't warn him because... Men like Robert aren't killed by accident. They're stabbed in the back, like Caesar. You bought up the farm for him, didn't you? Yes. Your husband threw him off the place, didn't he? Yes. And when he left you in Midford here alone, that was the disaster, wasn't it? Jeffrey knows nothing about it. You did it alone. I don't even care why you wanted to get rid of Forrest. I only care that you won't let me help you. I'm in love with you. Don't you understand that? You can't do this to me. 
as you can hear from that, it's very much over-the-top melodrama. Had to take out a large chunk of the trailer because, like all 1940s trailers, a lot of it is the music and a whole bunch of um, words on cards that flip past. So the dialogue from the film is pretty sparse in most trailers, uh, as I've found out fairly recently, in fact. But this one is um, an interesting film because... One of the reasons why Louis B. May was pissed off about it as well was the fact that it equates wealth and privilege and high social standing with fascism. And it, I mean, there were, there were a number of people that this character of Robert Forrest was based on. Um, one, of course, would have been Charles Lindbergh. If you have a look at the Des Moines speech, that Charles Lindbergh made, which was incredibly anti-Semitic and racist in, in various numbers of ways, you get a little bit of an idea. Lindbergh was an incredible icon to the American people. But this speech pretty much killed off his career, as indeed did the arc of World War Two. I mean, they've got him, you've got William Randolph Hearst, will be another prototype for the character. Uh, of course, Citizen Kane was only a couple of years old when this film came out, so it was very much on the mind of the filmmakers at the time they were making it that they didn't want to have the same arc as Citizen Kane and have it killed by taking things too closely to known living people. But having said that, the movie's theme is kind of important, that kind of idolatry of power and of putting your faith in princes and really having that faith betrayed. Now, it's a film that makes it, it makes that film uncommon too for the time because so much else in Hollywood at the time was aspirational. It was about people wanting to be rich and, and seeing downsides to being rich wasn't something that um, particularly the Hollywood studios and Breen, who was running the... Um, Hayes office at the time didn't want to see in cinema. They didn't want anything that kind of shattered that fragile illusion that wealth was a good thing. But nonetheless, as as this story goes on, a race um, develops between Herndon, the secretary played by Richard Worf, and O'Malley and Forrest in getting the information that Steve O'Malley needs to be able to tell the true story of the great man Robert Forrest. Ultimately, he goes into a an old fortress-like building on the property known as the Arsenal, where uh, a, Robert Forrest had his kind of study, his man cave in a sense. And he finds Christine there setting fire to some papers and he confronts her about it, and then she tells him the real story of Robert Forrest. I'm going to play the audio from that, because it still resonates powerfully today in a time where powerful forces are aligned against the best interests of the majority. And I think Christine Forrest would have been part of Anonymous or WikiLeaks had she existed in the 21st century, but I'll just give you the best of Catherine Hepburn in this film, which is her telling Steve O'Malley the true nature of her now-dead husband. He grew to despise the people that worshipped him, all of us. Me too. He felt that we were all beneath him. I didn't know what had happened. I I, I suppose that I was a bit like that myself once. I I believed in a, in a few people, leaders, rulers. But 
When Robert began to change, I... I saw the face of fascism in my own home. Hatred, arrogance, cruelty. I saw what German women were facing. I saw the enemy. The morning of the accident, I stole his keys. Came here and opened this. This is what I found. The key to Robert Forrest's fascist organization. Of course, they didn't call it fascism. They painted it red, white, and blue and called it Americanism. And here are the funds to see it through. Fantastic amounts subscribed by a few private individuals to whom money didn't mean anything anymore, but who wanted political power. Knew they could never get it by democratic means. There's a list of their names. This was the essence of their plan. Here are some articles ready for release to stir up all the little hatreds of the whole nation against each other. This was an article to be published in an anti-Semitic paper attacking the Jews. This was to be used in the Farmer's Gazette to stir them up against the city dwellers. Here's one attacking the Catholics. Anti-Negro, anti-labor, anti-trade union. Subtle appeal to the Ku Klux Klan. Here's a, here's a list of, of newspaper editors who either sought to occupy public office or sought to dictate who should occupy public office. And when they failed, felt that the public was a great stupid beast. Here's a list of men who served their country in the last war and were failures in business and again longed for the power of rank and the prestige of a uniform. In there are the names and addresses of the men who were designated to be America's first stormtroopers. But what was really shocking to me was the complete cynicism of the plan. Each of these groups was simply to be used until its usefulness was exhausted. Hates were to be played against hates. If one group threatened to get too powerful, it would be killed off by another group. And in the end, all these poor little people who never knew to what purpose they were lending themselves would be in the same chains, cowed and enslaved, with Robert Forrest and his handful of power-thirsty henchmen cracking the whip. Now, that was powerful stuff for the time, and still has a certain resonance, a certain power to it, and a certain timeliness about it which makes the film, for a long time it was out of fashion, but it kind of makes it almost fashionable again because the themes are themes that we understand and know from our own lives and from our own news these days, which is one of the reasons why I wanted to do Keeper of the Flame for the podcast. I think that looking back on the way the past viewed certain behaviours and certain social trends and the power of certain people is always an interesting thing it's the reason why I, i've talked about in past podcast movies like a face in the crowd and the great man because i think that this theme of abuse of power is an interesting one in cinema and i think that cinema also has a a kind of didactic dimension to it which is useful and powerful it's not just there to keep us amused it's not just there to be the equivalent of a toy hanging over a baby's bassinet, something with lots of colour and movement to keep us amused. I think cinema is much more than that. I think cinema is more important than that and has that educative purpose. And I think this film did try to do that. Uh, unsuccessfully, the character of um, Christine Forrest is very underwritten in the movie. And they had some questions about whether she should live or should die during the film because 
did she actually kill her husband or was her sin a sin of omission in not telling him the bridge was out and allowing him to drive on it? Was she actually a murderer? Because if she was a murderer, the production code said that murderers have to be punished in movies. But there was a grey area there and there was a lot of toing and froing from the censors and the studio on how the film should end. And I think they went with the weaker ending. I think they went with the one they had to placate the senses. But nonetheless, it's still... That kind of does blunt the the point of the movie right at the end of it, but I think it still um, has some strength to it and has some resonance to it and is a lot more interesting than it might have been otherwise because of that. Uh, I would have loved to have seen the a version of it where the filmmakers Kukor and the screenwriter of the film uh, who was David Donald Ogden, Ogden Stewart he said it was one of his best scripts as well would have liked to have seen them be able to make the movie and of course Tracy and Hepburn and Hepburn was pissed off with the way that they treated the Christine character but it would have been interesting to see the kind of film that would have made of this particular product or this particular property had they not been looking over their shoulder constantly for the censors in the studio to interfere in what they were doing. You know, I think it would have been a very, very powerful political film had that occurred. Not too much else to say about the film. Tracy is very good at it, Hepburn less so. And really, Audrey Christie steals the scene she's in beautifully, as indeed does Percy Kilbride playing Orion Peabody, the taxi driver. He is quite good in it as well. Uh, Frank Craven is the doctor in the film, who is one of the few people around who's not totally in love with um, Robert Forrest. Is quite good. And uh, Forrest Tucker's in it as well. People know him from F Troop. But this is one of the earlier roles by Forrest Tucker. Now, I'll tell you the Forrest Tucker story to do with George Cukor, the director of this film. George Cukor was a gay gentleman, and as much as was possible at the time and in the situation Mr. Kukor found himself, he was out. He'd have parties where beautiful young men and his gay friends would be there in his house. And Forrest Tucker, who wasn't gay, had an enormous dick. He was hung like an Italian delicatessen salami. And as a way of kind of helping his career, Forrest Tucker would be at these parties of George Kukors swimming up and down the swimming pool naked and jumping in and out of the swimming pool as a bit of eye candy for Kukor and his friends. And part of doing that got him the role in the film. Never a greatly gifted actor, but um, greatly gifted in other ways. So I'm going to end it there for Keeper of the Flame. Uh, It's a movie that I can see the virtues of and I'm disappointed in the shortcomings of it as well. But um, just to finish off the podcast, I'm going to do this um, as a little bit of a ksh. Here it is. Just keep it on the QT. Uh, a while back, Liz Travaskas and I talked about The Harder They Come, the Jimmy Cliff movie from the 1970s when on the radio. And I've got the audio from that. And I'm going to attach it now to the podcast. And then I'm going to come back. I've got one bit of feedback to do. And then I'm going to wrap this puppy up. So here's Liz and I talking about The Harder They Come. But you must try 
You can get it if you really want it. Helping deliver us to Jamaica in 1972 to talk about the first ever film made in Jamaica by Jamaicans. It's a crime drama with a reggae soundtrack and it stars the one and only Jimmy Cliff. One, two, one, two, three, four. I'm looking for work. I can't do anything in our anything. You can't stay here, you know, because I can't help you. I could make a record. I can sing, you know, Mama. You want me to go and beg work for $10 a week for the rest of my life? I'd rather die. Sitting here in limbo. This is my big chance. Nothing can stop me now, you know. Here, sign here. And remember, I control this business. Sitting here in limbo. What's the meaning of this, sir? Huh? I mean, you get $20 for the record. $20, sir? That don't sound right. You didn't believe me? Didn't I tell you I was going to be famous one day? Send this one to the editor. Make sure him get it. But you can't expect me not to publish a picture like this. Tell me up a pie up in the sky. Waiting for me when I die. But between the day 
On 105.7 ABC Dow and 783 ABC Alice Springs from 1972, the first ever film made in Jamaica by Jamaicans, The Harder They Come, starring Jimmy Cliff. He was in Darwin on Sunday night. Uh, and film buff Terry Frost, our favourite filmic friend, is here to talk to us about this film. Hello, Terry. Hello, Liz. It's a great film, isn't it? Uh, beautifully raw and, and kind of not very polished, but it's got a hell of an energy to it. Uh, so this was a suggestion because Jimmy Cliff was in town on Sunday night. We're just, you know, so many people have mm. commented about what a sensational show he put on for a 70-year-old and one of those people <laughs> who truly is a pioneer in this in this genre of music. Uh, so I hadn't seen it before. Had you seen it before, Terry? I had seen it many, many years ago on a kind of ropey-looking VHS copy of it. Uh, but this is the first time I've seen it in a clear high-definition one. It's a much better viewing experience, and it's a, a lovely film to watch. Tell us the story the, of The Harder mm. They Come. What happens? Well, there's a guy called Ivanhoe Martin who grew up in the countryside of Jamaica. His grandmother died. She was raising him, so he came down, comes down to the city, uh, sees his mother briefly, and decides he's going to make a go of it in the city. Uh, he tries to get an honest job, and he ends up working in... Um, in a workshop run by a preacher. But as things work out, all, everything works against him. The uh, the work he does for the preacher is not appreciated. He tries some other things. He tries to go in the record business and cuts a record, gets $20 for it, which is nothing, and uh, there's no promotion done for the record. So eventually he kind of drifts into the drug trade as, as a ganja dealer, uh, dealing marijuana around. But then he sees that other people are making much more money than him. And even though he is in the ganja trade and making money. There are still people taking their cut for not much work. And so eventually he decides to become an outlaw and goes against all of the main power groups in Jamaica and becomes a famous outlaw. And his record becomes very, very popular. It seems like a really, well, I don't mean to say plausible plot, but it seems like a plot that uh, that we've seen before. The oppressed man wanting to rise above the challenges in front of him, the, the police, the government, uh, and finding music as a way to get through that. But then also even the gangster kind of part of it feels familiar. Um, what did you think of the way that the story was executed? I liked it. It was actually kind of based around a, a gangster from the 40s and 50s in Jamaica. So it was almost a true story in some regards. Uh, you've got to remember that there, wasn't, there was no filmmaking done by Jamaicans for Jamaicans at the time. There are a lot of people that came in and made movies, Dr. No being one of them, of course, and Island in the Sun and a bunch of other films like that. But this is the first film that's made by Jamaicans, predominantly for Jamaicans, but it did get a, a lot of success in the US. And because of that, it, it does have that kind of... It's not polished work, but it does have a lot of energy and it does show the poor in Jamaica at the time. And I love the way it does it. I love that kind of almost documentary look that it has. Mm. I, I love the start of this film. You land smack bang in bustling Jamaican street life. It's a very visceral kind of moment. Busy, loud, cars honking and tooting, street vendors shouting. You can feel the heat like it's hazy with the, mm. with the sort of tropical heat. Power lines crisscrossing the street in a dangerous, low-hanging tangle. You know, that sort of developing country street scene that, that yeah. you can understand but it you just sort of feel like you are sucked into that world immediately and there's music everywhere too there's fantastic music all around the streets 
And it does feel like old documentary footage. And when I started watching it, I thought, gee, have I? I mean, I didn't realise at the time that this was the first film made by Jamaicans. And I thought, gee, have I ever seen a, a, a film of this style? Have I ever been taken so swiftly into a particular time and place in Jamaica because that's what it did for me. And so I started out feeling fantastic about where I'd landed. But I Mm. do have to say, Terry, that the acting and the way that the story develops and the directing uh, Mm. (laughs) really, uh, you you have to be prepared, I think, to forgive a lot. I'd, I'd go along with that too. Uh, uh, the, most of the there were some professionals in it, but they weren't professional actors. There were professional musicians and professional comedians and and other people. Not many professional actors in it, so the acting is a little bit ropey at times. But um, I mean, there were surprising things in there for me too, like when uh, they go to the movies at the start of the film and they're watching a spaghetti western. I love that bit because I know the western. It's Django <laughs> with Franco Nero. It's the one they based Django Unchained on. Okay. The Quentin Tarantino movie. I thought, geez, these guys are watching Django. How cool is that? And the Jamaican audience loved it. They loved Outlaws. That's the whole thing. The street culture in Jamaica at the time, and the argument is up until now, love is a good outlaw. And that's, of course, what Ivanhoe Martin, the character played by Jimmy Cliff, eventually becomes. And he becomes very popular because the cultural underpinnings of poor people in Jamaica were that they love somebody who rebels against all kinds of authority. Well, it does sort of seem to bounce very much out of the scene in the movie that they are watching, the the Spaghetti Mm. Western that they're watching, where the odds are stacked against the hero, but then he prevails. And you (laughs) see uh, something, you know, you see that that is what is trying to be replicated in this film. So much of this film, though, and as I said, uh, acting-wise, directing-wise, story-wise, I feel like I'm forgiving a lot. But the music is so central to it and to, you know, in the historical context of putting Jamaican music onto a world stage and Jamaican culture, obviously it was very important at the time. You heard a bit of the title track in the trailer, but let's just hear a little bit more. the film of, obviously, the same name, starring Jimmy Cliff from 1972. Uh, It is a lot about the music in this film. But, Terry, can you explain how this song fits into the story in this movie? Well, we're going to give it a couple of different names, the movie. They're going to call it Hard Road to Travel and Ride Jim, named after the gangster that the movie was kind of based on. But then they decided to call it The Harder They Come, and Jimmy Cliff had to write a song about it. And it's about how hard it can be being a poor person in Jamaica at the time and how hard it is to kind of get ahead and live your life in your own terms in that kind of environment. And I, I kind of like that. It's, it's an honest song about a real problem. And it's not just something made up because it's of the title he kind of wove the reality of people living in that situation into the song. And so he did write the song specifically for the movie. He did. Uh, he was a well-known musician, of course, in 
Jamaica at the time, but uh, when they came up with the title, they said, well, we're going to have a title song. So he made this song, but the song ended up being a classic. So all power to Jimmy Cliff for that. <laughs> and how does the song, uh, what, what role does that song play in the story of the movie? How does it demonstrate his, his character's success as a musician? Well, um, because the, the song, it's a good song uh, compared to some of the other songs that were being recorded. It does stand out above those. But then comes the politics and the record producer didn't like Ivan the character. And so he didn't promote the song. He just wanted to put it out there, make it the $20 he gave Ivan back and not really push it. And that again demonstrate the song and the way the song is treated by the characters in the movie demonstrates what the song is saying. And he goes out there on his own, doesn't he, to try and mm. uh, to sell the record or to get the promotion. But really, at the end of the day, it's the record producer, the one that we meet early on, who's driving, you know, the nicest car in the whole of the city. He he tells him, I own this town, baby, pretty much. You know, don't you try mm. and do this without me because you won't be able to. So he sort of demonstrates one of those obstacles of the wealthy uh, over the poor in that sense. What else can you tell us about the soundtrack to this? Is something that's so central and so crucial to what makes what makes this a good film. Yeah, I mean there are a number of different musicians on the, on the soundtrack as well. Uh, Desmond Decker does the track on there, and uh, there are many rivers to crosses on the soundtrack. It's just got all of these songs which flooded into America on the back of the movie and started that fondness that everybody around the world now has for reggae. Was can you tell us more about how this film did was received around the world at the time and the sort of cultural significance that it had at that yeah. time? Like it must just have if people didn't have that insight into Jamaican culture and Jamaican music, this must have just changed things so dramatically. Yeah, it was done two ways. In America, it was originally released on a double feature with a movie that had come out about a dozen years earlier, Black Orpheus, which is a fantastic film. It's the story of Orf- Orpheus done as a Brazilian samba movie and it won an Academy Award. And these two movies are totally different in a way because the characters are different. The only reason they were lumped together was that they were both featuring black people with music in a tropical setting. So that, that did okay in America just for a little while. And then somebody had a genius idea and they put The Harder They Come On as a midnight movie at a little cult, at little cult cinemas kind of the way they did with Rocky Horror and a bunch of other films like that. And it blew everybody away. It found its audience in America at those midnight sessions in the cinemas where people go to see weird and unusual films. And it really then went viral. Oh, I love that it went viral in 1972. It's one of those words that we use now to only sort of talk about things on the internet. But if people were just getting on board with it and loving it and talking about it and sharing it and loving the music as well, as we said, such an important part of this movie and sharing that culture of Jamaica. And as you said, not just all about Jimmy Cliff on the soundtrack, but showcasing a whole bunch of other music from the time, including uh, the likes of Desmond Decker.
loot, them a shoot, them a Decker and Shantytown from the soundtrack to the 1972 film The Harder They Come, uh, starring, of course, Jimmy Cliff. He wrote the title track, the song, you know the song, on 105.7 ABC Darwin, 783 ABC Alice Springs. It is the film that we're talking about tonight with our favourite film friend, Terry Frost. Uh, chose this one because Jimmy Cliff was in town just a week or so ago. Uh, Terry, is there anything else that we should know about this film? Did the act? I mean, I've sort of glossed over the acting <laughs> because yep. you know it, it's 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 amateurish. Uh, it is acting. amateurish. Yeah. But did anyone? I mean, did Jimmy Cliff star in anything else? Did any of the actors go on to have successful acting careers? Um, the simple answer is no. Jimmy Cliff did a, a few little cameos and things. He was in a movie called Club Paradise with Robin Williams in the 1980s, for instance. But uh, the thing I really like about the film, and I think that one of the strengths of the film, apart from the music, is the way there are these different power groups in the, in the culture. I mean, one of them is, of course, the record company guy, Hilton, who's a, very much a power in the community. You've got the Ganja people, the people who deal drugs. They're very powerful in the community. You've got the police and the government. You've got the Rastafarians who are kind of like the moral centre of the story. They're the people trying to keep the community going in a lot of ways. And then you've got the preacher and Christianity. And because this movie was made by people who were Rastafarians, Christianity is seen by Rastafarians as being a very negative and death-oriented religion. And I think a lot of that comes across in the movie too. They are very hard on the preacher and the kind of message that he's trying to put through the community. Rough around the edges, absolutely, but there is a certain energy that comes from that, and I think I was reading that that's sort of how it was received. Uh, where was it filmed? At Venice in 1972? What's the film festival it would have been at? Um, it was at Venice. I think it did end up going to Cannes at some stage, but I think it may have been the Venice Film Festival. I think someone... 
I was just going to say one of the reflections on that was, you know, alongside some quite serious films and some quite heavy going content, this really uh, captured people because of the energy, the rawness, the music, and I guess an insight into a culture that, you know, wasn't appearing on uh, in mainstream cinema at all. So uh, there's, there's a lot to be enjoyed about this film. Terry, I think I was reading as well about talk of a remake. Well, there's always talk about remakes of very successful films, and it's one of those films that you, even though it is rough around the edges and amateurish at times, you really hope that they don't do that because they're going to spoil all of the charm of it. And that amateurishness and and all of that kind of non-professionalism is part of the charm of the film in a way. Yes, it does annoy us because we're so used to polished product, but I think to remake it with... You know, professional actors who are really good at their job. And I all did that kind read of stuff. that. We'll lose it. I did read though that um, Jimmy Cliff would be reprising his role as Ivan. Okay, that's going <laughs> to make seventy-year-old Jimmy Cliff. It's going to make it a very different story, isn't it? It is. It's. It's. I can't really see him jumping over fences and running away from the cops too far. <laughs> no. Uh, so I don't know how much truth there is to to any of that. But I have. I have seen a few uh, articles around suggesting a remake. Uh, is there anything else that we should be looking out for in this movie? Just the documentary feel of of a lot of the crowd scenes, particularly, and the way people are on the streets playing dominoes in little back alleys. We're sitting on tin cans and and all of that kind of stuff. It's um, it does show you that uh, even though people are living in poverty at the time, they do have a very rich culture and a rich life, in spite of that um, those particular problems. And I, I like that too. It's, it does show Jamaica as a, a very interesting place and a very creative place. And I think that's an important message to send. And it's always good when you come away from a movie going, oh, yeah, I want to go to Jamaica now. (laughs) And the lovely thing, too, is they didn't make pretty Jamaica, you know, the pretty beaches and the palm trees and all that. They didn't make it No, it's rocky and rough and gravelly and, uh, yeah, it it feels rough. Garbage tips. Garbage tips. That's why I wanted to visit it, though, I think, because it showed a real place with interesting people. I mean, it's 1972 as well, so there's, yeah. you know, people, there's stylistically some stuff that looks really nice from the 70s as well. Yeah, it's very honest in that way. It didn't try to kind of sugarcoat the place, and I, I really like it for that reason as well. Terry, uh, a, a film, particularly if you want to enjoy some great uh, reggae music from the early 70s, The Harder They Come, starring Jimmy Cliff, if you saw him in Darwin. Recently, you might like to check this film out. Uh, what should we talk about next week? I was thinking of finding a Western for you after we saw that spaghetti Western in The Harder They Come. Maybe we can find a nice Western. Okay. All right. Terry, lovely to chat to you. I'll talk to you next week. On 105.7 ABC Darwin, 783 ABC Alice Springs, given that so much of this movie is about the music, we better hear some more. From Jimmy Cliff, it does feature in the soundtrack... This is many rivers to cross.
me alive I've been licked, washed up for years And I merely survive Because of my pride And this loneliness won't leave me alone It's such a tragedy woman left and she didn't say why Well I guess I have to try Many rivers to cross But just where to begin I'm playing for time There have been times I find myself Now, I've got some feedback. I don't know whether I've read this one out or not, and forgive me if I have, but I was digging through my emails. Now, I use Gmail for my emails, as you know, cultguru at gmail.com. And one of the things about it is that I never delete anything from the inbox. What I do is I search the inbox to find things, and I label them and put them into different folders, but I keep them in the inbox. And I missed one of the feedback emails, and I sincerely apologize to Ed Dixon. Now, um, Ed Ed said this to me. I'm just now listening to your episode on the Boston Strangler and Easy Rider. It's my first experience of your podcast, but I already expect to sample several more. I just want to offer a quick appreciation of your approach and knowledge of your subject. When I first saw the pairing of seemingly disparate titles, I feared I might be in for a glib, farcical, raucous treatment of the films. I was happily surprised and happily wrong. While I was while I have quite a few film podcasts that I listen to regularly, Film Spotting, the Slash Filmcast, you must remember this, the treatment et al. I often find in searching for new good ones, hosts who tend to be loud, sloppy and superficial. The Flophouse is a rare exception, which is all of those things, but still often very funny. It was a pleasant discovery to find another intelligent, cogent podcast in which the host treats his subject with attention and respect and gives his audience credit for doing the same. Well done, sir. You have a new fan, Ed Dixon. Thank you, Ed. Uh, That's profoundly touching that you've done that. I really apologise for not reading it out earlier, and not reading it earlier for that matter. I really should um, pay more assiduous attention to the inbox. But uh, that time was um, a pretty busy one for me. But I'm not making excuses. Thank you very much for the feedback. It really, truly is appreciated. And it's stuff like that that keeps me going in trying to do the best podcast I can possibly do with a few hiatuses for things like 
gastroenteritis. But anyway, that's about it for the podcast this time around. I got there finally. We did the movie I wanted to do. Um, thanks again for your attention. Thank you to, of course, all of the Patreon subscribers, the people who support the podcast monetarily with micro payments each month. It's getting to the time of year that hosting comes around, so all of the Patreon money for the next few months is going towards the hosting fees rather than buying movies that I will talk about in the podcast and other bits and pieces that podcasts and podcasters need. Uh, um, we'll be back in uh, a week with another Paleo Cinema podcast and tomorrow with another Martian Drive-In podcast. I'm actually doing the second of the Yucktober Martian Drive-In podcast. And I'll let you know right now what I'm going to do. I'm going to be looking at... Um, I Married a Monster from Outer Space, and I actually put it out there on Facebook what other movie I should do, what other genre film I should do for Yucktober. And one of the films that came up was one that I'd forgotten about, but I really thought, yeah, I could do something with this one. And it is James Gunn's Tromeo and Juliet, a trauma film um, from Lloyd Kaufman's studio. And I thought, I'm going to watch that and have a bit of fun and put it into the Yucktober. So, um, anyway, look after yourselves. Watch some good films. Watch some bad films. Watch movies alone. Watch movies with friends. Try not to eat too much junk food when you do it because it's going to go straight to your hips. And um, I'll be back very soon with another podcast. And as usual, I will end the podcast with the names of the Patreon subscribers in the manner of movie credits. So take care of yourselves and I'll be back soon. And here are the credits for the Patreon subscribers to the podcast in the style of movie credits. I'd like to thank Tom the Focus Puller, Sarah the Special Effects Technician, Ian the Caterer, Grant the Technicolor Consultant, Claire the Script Doctor, Gary the Prop Master, Morris the Musical Director, Jan the Dialect Coach, Armin the Key Grip, Matt the Rattlesnake Wrangler, Elaine our Scientific Advisor, Julia, our casting director, Chris, our camera operator, Christopher, our gaffer, Miss Jane, our wardrobe mistress, Tansy, the foley artist, Alyssa, our location scout, Mark, our second unit director, Paul, our special makeup effects director, Tammy, the donut wrangler, Tim, the New York unit director, and Rabbi Steve, our spiritual advisor. We also have Paul, who does the special makeup effects, and Kathleen, who has yet to have a job in the credits. And Eric, of course, is the set security lead. So thank you to everybody who supports the podcast and to the people who listen to it. If you want to support the podcast with some micropayments, please go to patreon.com slash paleocinema. And I'll catch all of you next time.